No one lived to, connected to an electric grid more than a century ago, and most of the world doesn't now. So I just kept saying to myself, 300,000 years people lived without this stuff. 10,000 years on this island of Manhattan. Why should technology make me more dependent? Welcome to another episode of Success Through Failure, the show for successful people and for those who want to become successful, the only show that reveals the true nature of success. Today, I bring you Dr. Josh Spodek. What can I say about Josh? He's been on the podcast now. This is his fourth time on the show. He is the host of the award-winning podcast titled This Sustainable Life. He's a four-time TEDx speaker. He's the best-selling author of two books, Initiative and Leadership Step-by-Step. He's a professor at NYU. He has five, yes, five Ivy League degrees, and he's been published in The New Yorker, Time Magazine, Inc., Psychology Today. He's been in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. He's been called the best and brightest by Esquire's Genius Issue. He's been called a rocket scientist by Forbes. And he's just an incredible guy. I mean, he's visited North Korea twice. He's swam across the Hudson River a couple of times. He's done burpees every day, every day since, get this, 2011. I haven't done burpees every day this week. So, Incredible guy, but that's really not what this episode is about. This episode is about mindset. This episode is about just getting started, doing the thing, not overanalyzing. This episode is about starting with no expectation of success. And this episode is about living by your values. We attack all of this through the lens of sustainability. Now, sustainability can be a political hot button. And there are so many different perspectives to look at sustainability through, and we address this. We actually address this head on. It's a really interesting conversation about all those things I just told you about, as well as about Josh's just fantastic, interesting story about how he's gone off the grid, living completely off the grid in New York City. By the way, in this episode, Josh and I talk about the challenge that he's going through and the and one of the things that he's doing, I, I called it like a misogy, which is a concept from Michael Easter in his book called The Comfort Crisis. And I mentioned in the episode here in the interview that I would tell you what episode that is. That was episode 312 where I interviewed Michael Easter and we talk about a misogy. Anyway, you're going to hear more about that shortly here in the episode in my conversation with Josh. So episode 312 is a great episode to go back to after you listen to this one. All right, let's get to it. My interview, number four, with Dr. Josh Spodek. This experiment started off with a month off the grid. That was the goal, one month off the grid. First of all, why? And then I want to kind of unpack how this month turned into a year. Can I give you some background before the month? Because the month didn't come out of nowhere itself. So last May 22nd, I had bought, used off of Craigslist, a portable power station and solar panel. So solar panels provide power, but it doesn't store it. So you need a battery. So they call them power stations. I didn't know anything about this. What I knew was that I wanted to see if I could go for a month off the electric grid. I had no conception of making it past a couple days. But I also know that you can only get so far without just doing it. So on May 22nd, 
I unplugged everything. And then I realized it's actually two of my uh, outlets have this little green light, the, the ones by the sinks that show that like you haven't shorted something because of the water. So then I went and unplugged the, I went to the circuit for the entire apartment, disconnected it. So I'm, my apartment is now physically disconnected from the electric grid. Now, I wasn't trying to solve all the world's problems yet. I was just trying to see what I could do. This is an experiment, a personal thing. So I wasn't trying to do things perfect. Like the solar panels are 200 watts and the battery pack is 576 watt hours. Is that a lot? A little? I had no idea. I have a window that is Southeast facing. So I get nice morning light. Can I put the panels in the windowsill? Will that work? Can I stick them out the window? But I have plants over there and I've like, you know, whenever it rains, there's always all this, I have to like clean the windows. I have no idea. And plus every month, like the sun changes its, its angle in the sky. There's clouds, there's buildings across the street that are blocking it. Like I can't calculate how much sunlight I'm going to get and so forth. Just got to do it. So actually before I started, it turns out that if I put the solar panels on the floor of my apartment with morning light, it will take something like four days to charge the battery. So how much battery pack does that use? Like how much power does 576 watt hours, is that good for? It turns out that my main use now I know is my pressure cooker. If I filled it the whole way and cooked my usual amount when I plugged into the wall, it would drain the battery and not finish cooking. But if I put in something like two thirds, definitely half, maybe two thirds full, then if it's 100% full, it'll drain the battery completely. So it turns out by accident, the amount of power that I bought used off a of Craigslist or the energy storage was like just enough to eke it out, but it's really not enough to live the way I was living before. I love what you said a couple of minutes ago when you said you can only get so far without actually doing it. And you, you pulled the trigger and you did this. And okay, so now you've, you've got battery power to make not quite a full pot of stew or in your, your pressure cooker, but maybe a little bit less than that, somewhere less than that. Okay, so you can make stew. Yeah. So I guess that particular day, I'd gone up the day before and charged it on the roof. So if I go up to the roof, it charges in bright sunlight about three to four hours, which it turns out if you do the math, 200 watts, 576 watt hours, it works out. So I'd come down and I made my stew that morning of the 22nd. Here's what happened. I was thinking to myself, all right, I know that I have some stew here. That'll last me a couple of days because two thirds full gives me about three, four meals. Plus not everything I eat is stew, you know, for breakfast, I have cereal which by the way, is not cereal from boxes and stuff. It's like actually just go to those, the bulk section and get grains and things. So those don't require cooking. But I knew I could make it a couple of days, but I didn't know anything past that. But also, what about the other stuff? The computer, the phone and things like that. And I, I know what the listener's thinking right now. Like, you can't just go put it in your refrigerator because your, your power's off. Right. So that's why this didn't come out of nowhere. Let me say what got me started. And then I'm going to go back to what brought me to where I would try to pull off something like this. So I thought to myself, all right, the computer is going to use power. The phone's going to use power. Do I need a floor lamp? I don't know. Oh, also I thought, should I wait for my Con Ed bill to the, the power bill to roll over so I can start on the day that my power goes so I can get one clean month? And then I noticed myself analyzing planning. And I learned from my experience, I'm not going to die. If I'm not going to die, just go, just start. Analyzing planning means delay. It's what school taught me. School is very good at getting me to write papers about things like that, but I'm not trying to write a paper on this. I'm trying to see what I can do. So this other voice inside my head said, I think you just started. And then I realized I just started. From past experience, I knew, like, just quit with the analyzing and playing, just go. And the best way to describe it for those who've run marathons is, is you know, you're like, you're 13 miles in and you're like, oh, I, I got to give up. And you're like, okay, one more mile. 
I can do one more mile, right? And then you do the mile, and you're like, okay, three quarters of another mile. And then, okay, just that, another block, just, another, just that tree. And you just keep saying, I'll just go a little bit longer. And somehow days turn to weeks, turn to months. And then I just kept learning trick after trick after trick, but they're not tricks. No one lived to, connected to an electric grid more than a century ago. And most of the world doesn't now. So I just kept saying to myself, 300,000 years, people lived without this stuff. 10,000 years on this island of Manhattan. Why should technology make me more dependent? Quick interruption. Hey, if you like what you're hearing, be sure to get the notes, quotes, and links in the action plan from this episode. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. That's jimharshawjr.com slash action to get your free copy of the action plan. Now back to the show. And those people didn't have a building with four walls to keep you dry when it rains and, you know, keep the weather out and all the things you have. Even if you don't have power, you have a lot of amenities that people for many, many years didn't have. And I, I looked this up afterward because I could find out in my browser history that I happened to read that morning. Do you know Sebastian Younger's book, Tribe? I know his, him as an author, but I don't know that book. Okay. So his book, Tribe, one of the things it starts off talking about is how in colonial times, there were lots of Europeans who ended up, for whatever reason, living among Indians. And there are lots of Indians who lived among colonists and even went to Europe. And it starts off by quoting some people that pointed out that, including Benjamin Franklin, who said that colonists who went to live among Indians often stayed and nothing could persuade them to come back. But there are no known cases of Indians who lived among colonists or went to Europe who stayed. They all went back. Wow. So there's a one-way flow. And I mean, people fought to stay, like when families were separated and they lived among the, the colonists lived among the Indians. And from the colonists' perspective, this is, they chose savagery over civilization. And it seems like, how could that be? Then I started learning a bunch more anthropology. And it's very common that when people really know both systems, they tend not to choose what we would call civilized. So I started learning much more about other cultures. And I don't mean other cultures like France and, and Japan. I mean, other cultures like hunter-gatherer, immediate return cultures. and my preconceptions were way off that they were living in the stone age, that the reason, you know, no one taught me explicitly, why don't they live like us? Why are there still some of them left? And what no one said out loud was because they're so stupid and ignorant. We got to teach them civilization so they can be like us, but they're sophisticated. They're not living in the stone age in the sense of like, they don't know any better. And some listeners are going to be like, oh, noble savage trope and stuff like that. No, the more you learn, the more it's not that. And I started learning this. A lot of them look at us and say, we see your technology. We see your longevity. But our step down from equality and community and family and mutual support, that it's not worth it to them. And we live in this very, it's a very... There's a lot of dependence and addiction in our culture. So I started feeling much more free, much more independent, the opposite of dependence, the opposite of addicted. And yet I'm still living in society. You know, I got to make money. I got to put food on the table and I got to show up on video calls when the call is scheduled and if power goes down, I got to figure things out. Uh, and I teach at NYU. There's a, a level of professionalism expected of me that if I don't have, I'm going to get kicked out of my apartment. I'm not going to, I'm going to go hungry. So it's not like I'm sitting around with like, oh, you know, I just have a little extra money. I'll just do whatever I feel like. No, I don't have savings to fall. I mean, I have a couple months to fall back on if I need it, but that's it. 
I have a support system. I mean, I, I got family. If I get kicked out of my apartment, I'm not going to like, my family will put me up. All right. So this is my situation. And I just dove into it with no expectation making it past a couple of days. No one is more surprised than I am. Oh, I, and I got to tell you what really put the, the cherry on the, on the top was that eventually stories got out and some people started following me. So the New Yorker sent a reporter over in October to do a story on me. And I don't recommend this story because the guy is like, I told him, what I'm doing is mission driven. This is not for me. This is not me doing some trendy thing. This is, it's sustainability leadership. And I'm practicing my scales in order to play in the orchestra. And you're going to see what I'm doing, but I, I'm a quirky guy because I know that the, for those who read The New Yorker, the talk of the town is like where they, oh, look at this quirky person. I'm like, the story is not me being quirky. I am quirky. Yeah, but that's not this. And he's like, oh, of course, of course. And then he comes over and I tell him all about, this is about sustainability leadership. If you don't practice what you're trying to teach, you don't know what you're talking about. I mean, I think of you as a wrestler. I mean, I, I, I doubt you've wrestled lately. But can you imagine someone who never wrestled and just read books about wrestling, teaching wrestling? How far is that going to go? How many people have never remotely tried to live sustainably and are saying, oh, everyone has to live sustainably? I think most environmentalists, they're lose their shit if they had to live sustainably. And yet they're telling everyone that's what we have to do. And they don't know what they're talking about. The challenge of living sustainably is not just what technology to use or more likely what technology not to use. It's what do you do when your friends are like, oh, you can't do that. What do you do when you feel like giving up? What do you feel like when you don't know how to do something? It's the same as like if you're lifting weights, you got to learn about diet and sleep. And what do you do when, you, when you're injured? Those are the things that are the hard parts. And that only comes through experience. All right. So now I'm going to go way back to the beginning. So 10 years ago, I looked at my garbage and I thought at that time, I wasn't doing anything on sustainability, didn't know, didn't care. It's not that I didn't care, but I, I felt like Individual action couldn't make a difference. Only governments and corporations could act on the scale that we needed. And, you know, I got a PhD in physics, so I'm thinking fusion is the answer. That's what we really need. Nuclear first and then fusion eventually. And anything else is just not going to really make a difference. So, you know, I had faith that the market or some smart people would figure it out. In that context, I noticed that my own garbage in my kitchen was overflowing. I emptied my garbage at least weekly at the time. And... I thought, well, this plastic stuff is poisonous and no one else can take responsibility for it but me, but I can. So I challenged myself to go for a week. Could I go for a week without buying any packaged food? And that experiment, I, like in principle, I knew that I could. I mean, plastic hasn't existed very long and people have been eating without plastic forever, but I didn't actually, actually know what to do. So I began analyzing and planning and six months went by. After that six months, I said, I'm not going to die. Just start now. That was my first experience doing that. And it turned out that when I'm analyzing and planning in the abstract, I have to think of every possible problem and every possible solution for every possible problem. And I never get started. But when I actually just go to the store, I'm like, what can I get? I'm like, well, I got vegetables and produce. And because I bring my own bag, I can get stuff on the bulk section. So I'm like, I guess that's what I get. And then over the course of the next several weeks and months, I learned how to cook from scratch. Like for the first time in my life, I got dried beans from bulk, put them on the stove and boiled them. So I'm like in my 40s. This is success through failure, by the way. This is just getting out there, pulling the trigger, trying it, succeeding, failing, figuring it out along the way. Yeah, I skipped over this one step of when I'm at the store and I went in like on autopilot to this shelf where I normally start. I'm looking for the first time and I actually couldn't see food. I could only see boxes and cans and things like that. 
And I felt like I got Ivy League degrees out the wazoo and I've started businesses and I can't eat, which is to say I can't live without hurting people. This is like this, and I'm standing like dumbfounded, feeling horrible. Like, oh my God, my entire life, every time I've eaten, I've punished people, putting pollution in their backyards. But as I learned to cook, people boiling beans, like I think most of the world probably starts doing that when they're like five years old. I'm in my 40s. So I'm you know, very dependent and realizing this. So after about six months, I start making really good meals from practice and start developing my own cuisine. Then that leads to, I'm going to skip over a lot of stuff here, but I started thinking, what else did I think would be terrible might also be awesome. So I challenged myself to go for a year without flying, immediately thinking, oh, my family's going to disown me. I'm not going to be able to make a living and it's good to fly. And then a couple months into that, I was like, after I got through the withdrawal and the detox, then I realized it was, my life was better without flying. And by exactly, exactly the things that I thought I was losing out on, I was gaining more. So that led me to expect that if I acted on my environmental and sustainability values, I came to expect probably I'm going to go through a period of withdrawal and then I'll like it later. I mean, no one flew before 1903. And why should I so be, be so dependent? So then I was reading this article on how other countries, this is about Vietnam in particular, but other places don't refrigerate as much as we do. They, they ferment and have different food systems with less waste, more health. And Vietnam has like pretty good tasting food. So at that point, I looked over at my fridge and I thought, well, that's my most, the source of my greatest pollution. And I thought, I wonder if I could go without a fridge for a little while. And I started thinking, well, what would I do? Would I have to learn to ferment? And, and I was like, right, I caught myself with the analyzing and planning. And before I could stop myself, I walked over and I just unplugged the fridge. So just do it, right? I'm not going to die. I can always plug it back in again. And just for the listener, like, you know, whether you're thinking about, you know, following in Josh's footsteps or it may be in some small iterative way, or, or it's just something else, whether it's the, the business or something in health and wellness, I'm trying to figure out how to run a marathon or how to run a 5k, just, just start. That's a big part of the lesson here, but sorry, Josh, go ahead. Yeah. I do put the caveat. If, if there's a risk of death, you know, that's, it. I'm not going to die. Right. So if it's like, hmm, I wonder if I can tightrope across uh, the World Trade Center buildings, which someone did, but there are very few things like that. For the listener, if you've listened to the, uh, the episode with Michael Easter, Michael Easter talked about the misogy, this concept of the misogy. It's like doing something really hard where you have a 50-50 chance at success. No, so rule number one is you have a 50-50 chance of success. Rule number two is don't die. So this is kind of like a misogy. It's, I mean, it's all there. And no one's doing it. Everyone's like looking at sustainability and being like, well, I guess we actually have to make nuclear reactors and not realizing where that leads. So I unplugged the fridge and a lot of stuff I just ate right away. Then some of the stuff, I, so I learned to ferment first the sauerkraut and then other things. And once you start learning, you start telling people about it. And then people start telling you, like you start tapping into community. Uh, I, my family didn't grow up, we never fermented anything. But now, like right now I've got, a whole bunch of sauerkraut and chutney going on over there and some kombucha. And I do it without thinking about it now, but I, I never did any of that before. Although my, my masterpiece there was that I had a bunch of oranges in the freezer because some school nearby was throwing a bunch of oranges away as I was walking by. And I was like, all right, I'll take them. If you're going to throw them away. So I had all these oranges in the freezer. I put them in vodka and it's delicious. 
never buy orange flavored vodka. Just get regular vodka and just drop oranges in and it infuses it. It tastes really good. So I had all these like simple successes and I made it three months with my fridge unplugged. And it wasn't that I had to plug it back in again. It was that I, the pandemic hit and I went outside the city. And see, it was December I, and I, I could use the windowsill. It was cold right by the window because it's December in, in New York. The following year, I started in November and I made it farther into the spring when it got warmer. But, you know, Vietnam is hot and humid. So I know that they're not using cold techniques to keep their stuff fresh. And there's also a lot of like buying things differently, like frozen pizza you can't do, which I wasn't getting because I'm avoiding packaged anyway. But fruits and vegetables stay pretty fresh. You know, tomatoes stay fine for a week or two, apples longer, potatoes, beets, carrots. These things will take a long time. And lettuce, you put in water, it actually grows. Like the longer I wait, the more lettuce I get. It gets cheaper. I didn't know any of this. So the following year, I made it six and a half months. And I started getting farther and farther into the spring with fermenting and, and shopping differently and shop seasonally. That's another big thing is that makes it a lot cheaper too. So the following year, my goal, I started in September and my goal was to make it eight months. So my fridge was unplugged. My electric bill, right, there's $18 I can't touch because that's just being connected. But the rest of it was like a dollar. My electric bill is like a dollar, $2 a month. And I'm thinking, I wonder if I can get that to zero. That's what got me thinking. I wonder if I can get it to zero. So one day I said, I'm going to go for 24 hours. I'm going to unplug my apartment. So before the one I talked about earlier, I just said, what can I do for 24 hours? Now, I was kind of thinking, you know, if I hold my breath, the oxygen that I skipped there, I got to make up. I got to breathe heavy afterward. So if I don't use power for a little while, am I going to use extra power later or not? I don't know. So this one 24-hour day, I just unplugged. That's the first time I, I went to the circuit and unplugged it. And my girlfriend at the time, we just rode her bike to Brooklyn and had a great day outside. 24 hours later, I plugged back in. No problem. So I thought, huh, I wonder if I can go longer. So I had these $1 a month electric bills. I had a 24-hour period with no repercussions. I went on my blog and said, does anyone know about solar? Maybe that would be a piece for this. No one wrote back. If you know me, I'm only going to get the stuff used. So I, I go on a Craigslist and I don't know what's available, what's not. So there's solar panels that can go permanently on the roof. But I live in a, uh, a big apartment complex and my co-op board will never allow a permanent installation up there. So am I going to wait for their permission for that's never going to come? No, I'm not going to do that. So I keep looking and I see that there's these portable solar panels, which I think are designed for people whose idea of camping involves still watching TV. Well, there's a lot of preppers who get this stuff too. It's funny. People look at sustainability as this, as this really liberal thing. But preppers actually believe that you can live sustainably. They're role models in a certain sense. Let's talk about the politics of this. And you and I have talked about this offline before, but as I learn more and more about politics and I see the world being more and more divided, I'm becoming a little less political, I think, because I see the the BS and the hypocrisy on both sides. And, and I think that people agree much more than, than we'd like to believe, or I guess maybe the media would like us to believe. But I don't want to go down that rabbit hole so much as your take on sustainability being, you know, certainly in, in politics, it's a liberal thing. But what is your take on this? It's evolved a lot, especially because of this experiment of being off the grid. The roof is 11 flights climb. And if it's up there for four hours, that means I'm not going to stay up there for four hours most of the time. So I got to climb 11 flights, come back down, 
go back up again, 11 flights, come back down. And I live on the fourth floor, fifth floor. So this, if I go down on the street a couple of times, typically I've been going up and down 30 flights a day, three or four days a week for just about a year now. And by the way, that's a really healthy, good, positive thing. It's not going to the gym. It's not getting on the, on the stepper at the gym. You're actually doing it. And this is, this is the way humans live for thousands upon thousands of years is actually moving our bodies to do the things that we needed to do on a regular basis. Yeah. And I think the panels probably weigh about 15 pounds and the battery weighs probably another 15, 20 pounds. And then in the winter, I'm wearing winter coats and stuff. So I'm, like, I'm carrying like 50, 60 pounds worth of stuff up with me. It's much easier to get it down. The, the climb up later is like, I'm like, oh, this is so easy. And I've turned 51 during this thing. And I had this knee injury that kept popping up. Anyway, so it's not like trivial. And I'm not saying this is like a gut check moment. I'm not like taking fire like a, a Navy SEAL or something like that. But it's a bit of a challenge. I can't help but ask myself, why am I doing this? What's motivating me? And what's motivating me, at first, you know, I could say, well, I'll just do a little less cardio. It's not actually taking any extra time. So it's, it's no, no extra motivation required. But then I'm like, that's not it either. And I start thinking I'm doing it for like it's a ritual. Like it's like meditative. I'm like, well, that's kind of nice too, but it's doing it for other people. It's doing it to alleviate suffering. But I'm also starting to think of like why people do these things. And different people have different reasons. I've, and I also had to go into some deep dives into, there's a book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. And that guy did a debate with Bill McKibben, who's a big environmentalist. And so I read that book. I don't know if you know Julian Simon or Milton Friedman, certainly Ronald Reagan. Actually, Reagan was very pro-environment especially as governor of California. Same with uh, Barry Goldwater and William F. Buckley. These really stalwart conservatives up until about the 80s were very, did a lot of very, what would now be called pro-environmental things. But even all of them, it was generally to preserve nature, to preserve this beautiful, beautiful country. Nature is just stunningly beautiful. And I've, I've definitely increased my appreciation of it. But the stuff about the indigenous cultures and their freedom and equality got me realizing when I think of conservative and libertarian thought, I got to go back for, for, for some more context. In today's world, I think most people view sustainability as a liberal issue. And I think we live in tribal times when people stick with their tribe more than they examine their own values. And I think a lot of conservatives as a reflex of like owning libs is like they're against environmental things or against they would I think they would put it as against regulation, owner's regulation that prevents businesses growing and flourishing. My understanding of some of the deepest conservative and libertarian values, and I, I can give you a quote from, I think, Milton Friedman saying that government has a, has a role. He's not saying no government. And it's to protect life, liberty, property, and the pursuit of happiness. These things are in the Declaration of Independence and also to create a level playing field so that businesses can thrive and flourish and resources can, can be allocated to the problem solvers to make the world a better place. Well, life, liberty, property, pollution fundamentally destroys life, liberty, and property. And as for level playing field, find me a government that has not been infiltrated and corrupted by fossil fuel interests or uranium interests, if you want to go for something later. We do not have a level playing field. It's not even remotely close. It's a very controllable resource. And when you have a resource that, be, can, that can be controlled because of, you can control the access through property, through physical, you know, who, who can drill for the oil, then you can create a dominance hierarchy in which one group can force the other to, it can win. 
Well, this is against the principles of, of smaller limited government. It's against the principle. It's terrible for national security to have this dependence on oil. To say dependence on foreign oil misses the, the they act as if the keyword is foreign. The, the keyword is dependence. So our national security is like falling through the floor. As for personal responsibility, which I associate also with conservative and libertarians, where's the personal responsibility? Forget if you can change anything else. If you're paying for something that pollutes, that hurts others' life, liberty, and property, take some personal responsibility for the consequences of your actions. And that's, what I, that's exactly what I was doing. Not, I wasn't waiting for permission to put the panels on the roof. I got the portable ones and I can do that. Also, I should say that I, without the power, I'm doing a lot of things that don't require a lot of power. So I read like all these like six, seven hundred page books. And I just want to make a quick point. Like what you're saying, like this is not a criticism of liberals or conservatives. You see this from both sides. You see this from both. This is not a one side of the aisle or another side of the aisle, but you see this as an issue that we all are dealing with and facing. And there's even, I've even heard you criticize liberals on this. And, and I know you're, you've been on a podcast with, uh, it was a very conservative podcast. And you were on that podcast because you agree, you agree with these guys and you agreed so much with, with that side. And so I just think your politics on this are not even politics. They're just what you said. I actually wrote this down earlier. You said, we're so tribal, we tend to side with our tribe more than we actually analyze our values. And I think that goes with, with both sides. That's why I mentioned the climbing up and down the stairs. It's like, what are my relevant values here? And not what people tell me to think or something, things like that. So if I look at my values of, I agree, government should protect life, liberty, and property. So if we have a government that's charged to protect life, liberty, and property, to protect your life, liberty, and property, and my right to do something that destroys your life, liberty, and property. In Lincoln's words about a slightly different situation, a house divided against itself cannot stand, which I think actually he was quoting the Bible. But we have a fundamental contradiction that we have had in the past before this nation, where it said one group of people can do X and prevent other people from doing exactly that. It seems to me that well, the, the, I mean, the framers could not possibly have imagined in 1787, when they wrote the Constitution, they could not have imagined fossil fuels and uranium and the situation that we have now. Heating the world, putting more plastic in the ocean than fish, that was inconceivable to them. So it's not like they, they left it out. They couldn't possibly have imagined it. And yet, we live in a world in which if we look at our values, it's undeniable we have an internal contradiction. Actually, another big thing from Lincoln was he said, the most damaging thing you can do to yourself is to do something that you believe is wrong. And this has become the touchstone for me. Because notice he didn't say to do something that I believe is wrong or that's absolutely wrong or to own slaves. It's to do something that you believe is wrong because when you do something that you yourself believe is wrong, you have an internal conflict that you cannot run away from. And if people point it out to you, you will get mad at them for making you feel guilty, but they didn't make you feel guilty. You're acting against your own values, your own beliefs, what you believe is wrong. That's where the guilt comes from. The emotional discomfort that comes from doing something that you know and believe is wrong is brutal. Guilt and shame barely scratch the surface. Helplessness and hopelessness and futility, and we become incredibly vulnerable, and we will do whatever it takes to avoid facing those feelings. We will lie, we'll suppress, we'll deny anything but facing that. And so when people bring up these problems, we'll say, oh, stop getting blah, 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 stop making me feel guilty. But the problem is the only way out of it is either you can change your beliefs, what you believe is wrong, or you can change your behavior. But no amount of anything else will resolve that conflict. And when the beliefs are you know, even deeper 
than protecting life, liberty, and property for government is do unto others as you would have them do unto you. The golden rule is, in, as far as I know, in every culture that we've ever looked, live and let live, which I would call common decency, and leave it better than you found it, stewardship. These are gone from American culture. And, you know, not just America, but this is where I live. As re- and not everywhere, just in, as regards how we treat each other when mediated through the environment. We've just let, abandoned those. So if you want to resolve that conflict inside of you, if you're doing something that you believe is wrong, if you are violating do unto others as you, would have, as you would have them do unto you, and do you want people dropping their garbage in your backyard? Well, if we're dropping our garbage, it ends up in other people's backyards. It seems to me violating do unto others. I mean, and that's to say nothing of things of like carcinogenic things and things that cause birth defects and things like that, which are like, we have an area in this country called Cancer Alley. We have areas called sacrifice zones. It's just triage. We're like, oh, we can't do anything about that. People live there. People live there and we, our taxes pay for this. And when we fill up our gas tank, we pay for this. Okay, so you can face it or not, but if, if you don't want to live in Cancer Alley and you're paying companies that cause Cancer Alley to become Cancer Alley, you're doing things that you know that you believe are wrong. So you can either change the belief. All right, so drop, do unto others. I don't see that happening. All right, so you got to change your behavior. Josh, it's so hard because that stuff is so hidden from us. And we're just around people who are doing what we do, polluting and driving. And you know, we're not around you, right? We're not around. We don't live next door to Josh. We don't spend all day with Josh. And so you know, we're spending time with everybody else who is kind of going through the world operating like this. You know, we talk about the environment of excellence in my coaching program. And, you know, when you're around other people that are doing this stuff and it's just normal, then you tend to do it too. How do you overcome that? What's around us is what we choose to see around us. Me now wasn't there before this. And I really had no expectation of success on this. It took me a while to look back. My first experiment with avoiding packaged food, I actually wanted to fail. I wanted to find out that if the cure was worse than the disease, then I could stick with the disease and say, look, I tried, but what can I do? What have we replaced doing to others? The golden rule and stewardship and common decency. What have we replaced them with? Abdication, capitulation, resignation. That was me. That's American culture today with regard to the environment. And well, who are my role models? Who am I thinking of when I'm going up and on these stairs? Well, first of all, there's Nelson Mandela, there's Gandhi, there's Martin Luther King, and they've always motivated me. But going up and on the stairs, one of my favorite videos online, I've never watched it all the way through. It's like an hour of LeBron James practicing with a coach. And it's technically an advertisement for some water, but all he's doing is like taking foul shots, doing a few stretches. It's boring. He's practicing the basics. Does he practice the crazy spin moves? No, but he practices the basics and that's where the crazy moves come from. And I'm thinking about the amount of practice that he does or Michael Jordan, or anyone who succeeds at anything. What I'm doing is nothing compared to that. Going down the stairs, like going up and down 30 flights, three or four days a week, compare that to an, uh, an NBA practice. I'd be kicked out of the league, right? If, if I was like, look how much I'm practicing. It's nothing. So these are my peers. Why should I look at my neighbors who are polluting and say, that's my peer? I'm looking at Michael Jordan and being like, this is so nothing compared to what he's doing. And here's something I got to get across that people don't believe. My mom doesn't believe me on this. It's better. Like I'm eating more fresh food. I'm saving money. I'm spending less time on things that I don't care about. There's a reason behind this. But you tell me what you think you're going to lose when you kick an addiction. And I'll tell you exactly what you're going to get more of. So we know it. If someone takes meth, they think that they're full of energy 
And they are for that brief jolt, but most of the time they have less energy. Gamblers think that they're winners because every now and then they win to get this jolt of feeling like a winner, but they're actually losers. That's why they, you know, they got to borrow money from everyone. And you may choose to see it or not, but we're addicted to the things that pollution brings us, flying and, and comfort and convenience and things like that. Just like a gambler who quits gambling actually starts winning more, not less. A meth user who stops using meth gets more energy, not less. And someone who stops polluting will get, here's what they're going to get more. You tell me what you think you're going to lose, and I'll tell you exactly what you're going to get more of. You think you're going to spend less time with family, you're going to spend more time with family. You think you're going to lose control over your career, you're going to get more control over your career. You think you're going to get less in touch with nature, you're going to get more in touch with nature. It's really hard to believe until you do it. But what I can tell you is that whatever you think you're going to lose, whatever, you, whatever disaster you think is going to befall you, you're going to have some detox. You're going to have some withdrawal, but you will like life on the other side way more. I would not have believed anyone telling me this, but now it's become so glaringly obvious that whatever you think you're going to lose, you're going to get more of when you kick these dependencies. Josh, for the listener who is bought in, they want to take the first steps. What are some small, actionable things they can do in, let's say, the next 24 to 48 hours to start following the prescription you're talking about here? The biggest thing is a mindset shift. If you're doing it because you think you're supposed to or you have to or the New York Times told you to or something like that, then you're complying and you're going to find reasons to resist. The best thing I can do, I can, I'll give you a link, if that's okay, of this podcast. Someone I taught the Spodic method of, of how to create this mindset shift. And a guy that I taught it to was doing a podcast with someone else and they stumbled into it and he does the Spodic method with her. And she's like, oh, this is really good. I really want to do thing, things like this. So you can hear in action. I mean, it's what my podcast is. It's what you and I did on our podcast uh, when you were on mine. And creating that mindset shift, first have the mindset shift. So how to make that happen, the Spodic method is a way to do that. The link that I'll give also shows me teaching the Spodic method to someone. But that mindset shift is absolutely critical. Otherwise, people just push back. And this is not about you have to do this or Bangladesh is going to be underwater. This is about we've disconnected from nature and we don't know what we're losing. And when we reconnect, we realize what we're losing. We realize how valuable it is. And that mindset shift is it's critical. Josh. Incredible. For the listeners, I will have links to Josh's websites, the Spodic Method, his books, etc. in the action plan. Josh, thank you for making time to come on the show. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to apply these principles into your life, let's talk. You can see the limited spaces that are open on my calendar at jimharshawjr.com slash apply, where you can sign up for a free one-time coaching call directly with me. And don't forget to grab your action plan. Just go to jimharshawjr.com slash action. And lastly, iTunes tends to suggest podcasts with more ratings and reviews more often. You would totally make my day if you give me a rating and review. Those go a long way in helping me grow the podcast audience. Just open up your podcast app if you have an iPhone, do a search for success through failure, select it, and then scroll the whole way to the bottom where you can leave the podcast a rating and a review. Now, I hope this isn't just another podcast episode for you. I hope you take action on what you learned here today. Good luck and thanks for listening.